Hey guys, and welcome to the Movement Docs Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Mike. And we're just two guys who want to help students and clinicians grow in the field of rehab. Welcome to the show. You go for it. <laughs> you, want me, you want rock, paper, scissors for it? <laughs> no, that doesn't work because we can't, we can't see each other. No, you just call out what you have. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ready? Ready? <laughs> rock, paper, paper scissors. scissors. I have scissors. I had rock. This is, this <laughs> is right, then you totally honor system right now, you know. <laughs> then, then you win, Mike. You, you're you're going to intro stuff. Okay. <laughs> hey, guys, and welcome to episode 33 of the Movement Docs podcast. Today, we're featuring our favorite, Dr. Steph Allen. We've had Steph coming on the show before for episode 24. So if you haven't listened to that episode, check it out. It's really awesome. Uh, to give you a little bit of a bio and background, Steph's a little bit of a nomad who did travel PT and found her way into strength and conditioning and landed in Boston. Now she's trying to push the profession forward and work towards updating boards and curriculums, as well as at the same time, uh, she's focused on learning more about strength conditioning, training in and outside of PT, unweaving the tangled nest that is ACL injury and advocating for women within the PT profession and the clinical world as well. Steph, thank you so much for coming on the show again. We're happy to have you on. Thank you, guys. Pumped as always. <laughs> Steph, I think that, I mean, there was a lot of cool stuff in your bio, but I really think that you probably could have just, like, made that more concise um, to, like, maybe, like, a handful of words that was just – because, if I mean, if I was going to rewrite this, I would just say she's a badass. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, that, like, that's kind of all you need. I was – I would – I will definitely take that into consideration because one, it would make my job easier for, for future events, future endeavors. And also depending on the definition of badass, I think that lends itself to uh, probably a few of the things that I identify with or work on. So thanks Jake. I just wanted to, to you know, put that in there. Uh, I, it's not like I have a background in writing or anything. Uh, I was told recently that, um, who was it? Well, I think it was Brad. I wrote like a note to Brad at work and he was like, dude, did you write this? I, I thought it was a girl that wrote it because your hand, your handwriting is just so beautiful. Oh, it's like, well, thank you, Brad. But see, see now that I don't love because does, does it just mean that all girls have really good handwriting and all or all females and all males have bad i mean i don't like that i mean i I completely agree with you we're assuming some sort of gender role on the quality of handwriting um but i would say that my handwriting is aesthetically pretty because i continue to use wide ruled notebooks versus college ruled Mm. um Mm. simply because i think that i shouldn't be contained into such small lines on a piece of paper you you gotta let it flow you got to give yourself space to express. I get it. Yeah, it's just plus like when are you going to find a college ruled notebook that has like Spider-Man on the front or like several <laughs> small kittens that have been posed together in front of a field of lilacs? Oh um, man. And the funny thing is there's probably a bunch of people that are going to listen to this that will be like, "Dude, who uses regular notebooks still anyway?" <laughs> Everything's like a Google Doc or or iCloud note or something like that. But I, there's still something that helps me writing stuff down. So I feel you. I just think that there's something to the colorful notebooks found in the like middle school section of Walmart when you're going to like back to school stuff. 
because um, it just, you know, there was something about sitting down in like a 500 level lecture class at UVA with like a yeah. unicorn notebook and then someone sitting next to me and just like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> and, uh, and one, that thing was probably a buck 99 and two out of those 500 kids, you're the only one that has it. So yeah, so you're defying, you're defying odds. I just wanted to be a special snowflake. That's all it was. You do you. I'm just And this is why I end up talking to you guys for two hours. <laughs> That's all right. I'll get my I'll get my uh my hourglass out. Hmm. <laughs> no, trust me, if I didn't if I didn't have seven bajillion other things to do, I would just kind of chill here all day with a little bit of coffee. Mm-hmm. We can make fun of Zach a little bit. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> Notice how Mike introduced you as our favorite. Yeah, I'm gonna hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We can we can deal with a, an angry group text to Grandma Ethel's deadlift. <laughs> I still love that. That's your guys' group text name. We have we have very interesting ones. Uh, what did we name the one with RunFit Doc Mike? Was it Van Dyke Brown? It was yeah, it was Van Dyke Brown and Happy Little Wines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, uh, we actually just FaceTimed with Danielle last night. They're they're still in California. And we had um, a little work get together. She's like, I miss you guys. I wish we were there. <laughs> You're like, go on your honeymoon. <laughs> she is she is crew no. now. She is. She is, she is team crew. We miss mm-hmm. her. And then we have what we have one with uh, some other people called like Swole Team Six. Mm. Yeah, and then, uh, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of teams. Just very. There's like so many, so many things. What's the one with? Is it Sand Squats? Is that the one with uh, <laughs> Mel and Taylor? It might be. <laughs> it might be. She's. Oh, shout out Mel and Taylor! I love those ladies. <laughs> They're awesome. Ever since I pointed out that her name is Oreo Sand Squats, she can no longer unsee it. Oh, I get it. Damn. No, I'm not going to unsee it. <laughs> You're welcome, everyone that listens to this podcast. Yo, in the next week, Mel's, Mel's Instagram name is going to change, and we're going to know why. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be some underscores. Uh, uh, she's going to be like, I can't take it anymore. Well, I mean, sand squatting... <laughs> It could be a thing, you know. Maybe yeah, maybe it's a new revolution in fitness. Maybe she can become a, a guru on sand squatting and make millions of dollars. I feel like we could roll with that. Uh, we we'll introduce it to her. Unstable balance training, you know, natural promoting environmental growth. Maybe it's a sustainable um, PT modality. Yeah, I mean. LeBron does squats and crazy things on the BOSU. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, an unbelievable specimen of a human. So maybe we can make something of that type of squat and market it. Mm-hmm. Do you guys know what BOSU stands for? Um, yes. Silly? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think it's, the S can be interpreted as that. But I think <laughs> the actual, the believe the actual name comes from both sides up. Oh, I like that. I'm not. I'm not actually hating on it. I use we use it sometimes, but it's when it's 
claims to be that whole functional training thing that I get a little bit sour. That's all. <laughs> you think like when you're trying to do some sort of linear squat progression where someone's on a BOSU ball with like chains suspended from the squat bar and they're doing like yeah, an extremely just... narrow squat and there's like bands around their <laughs> knees and then they're also trying to do it like tempo to the to like some random techno song that's being played in the background. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, insert that into my progressions or regressions. Where does that fall on yeah. Gentile's taxonomy? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh man. It's too funny. Is that how you do it? Or if you're Jewish, do you say Gentile's taxonomy? I have no idea. <laughs> I It's like a really actually bad job, that... uh, Bible joke, but you know, happy Sunday. I know, I know that <laughs> The Lord's Day. Um, that actually reminded me, because I know you guys normally ask, um, like, what's one thing people don't know about you? And I honestly can't remember what I said last time, but that genteel joke, and I know this is weird, reminded me of that. And before I forget, I actually, both of my parents were adopted. So I actually have no idea what I am. Like, I could be Jewish, who knows? Huh. Um, I, I maybe should be doing something else on a Saturday or Sunday, but um, I don't know. The only thing that really sucks is uh, medical mm. history. It's pretty much non-existent. So, um, I can check that one off the list. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing a lot of people yeah. don't know. Interesting. I think I just jumped ahead. Sorry. No, that's perfect. No, that's okay. That fits the theme of our podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, uh, what's the mathematical what, uh, chaos theory, right? Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like what our podcast is. I enjoy it. Everybody needs a little bit of chaos. You, co- you cover a lot of things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful stream of consciousness. Um, so it's like, mm. you know, we oftentimes we talk about um, metacognition, thinking about how we think about things. But in the grand scheme of things, this small vignette of a podcast is like a smaller subset of like the collective universal thought process that Mike and I are sharing with everyone else. Um, and we jump around just, just like our brains do. Mm. Um, I like that. And also it makes me and us sound like super influential <laughs> on the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, I just started reading um, "Why We Do What We Do," um, but I think it's Edward, it's DC, and uh, Richard Ryan, like their research, mm-hmm. and it's all—it's um, about mostly like intrinsic motivation and basically like why people do what they do. I know that sounds really silly, but. Um, I'm really excited because they extrapolate it to things like coaching mm-hmm. and teaching too, um, which is kind of, you know, since I've started working with the girls' soccer team, something that I want to be better at because we're so used to the one-on-one patient-client relationship that I think now working with a group of young girls is kind of like, okay, I need to be in a different mindset or reframe some things a little bit to reach them a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So let's... I will keep you guys yeah. posted on that one. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, um, 
maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of update of what you're doing now and then kind of delve into a little bit and how you got involved with the soccer team and, and what you're doing there. Yeah, so it ended up sort of falling into my lap and it's super exciting because in general, my three to five year plan and kind of pipe dream life goal is to get myself into youth athletics and be a part of the hopefully positive change as far as reducing injury rates, <clears throat> specifically my interest is ACL, obviously, but kind of just in, in general, just preparing kids from a younger age for the demands of sport and also doing things like encouraging um, not early special specialization or anything like that. Um, but we had, for, for anyone who already follows me on Instagram, I, for since the winter, really, since February, March, um, I have had one patient that I've kind of featured a lot in either posts or stories, um, in the ACL series that I did with Taylor and Wes, she was kind of my, um, go-to for demonstrating the drills and progressions with plyos. Um, but she is a D1 commit for soccer, going to be a senior. And she was expressing not only interest about ACL and, and, uh, injury rates and risk reduction, but also how maybe since she had been having a good experience in our clinic and progressing really, really well and feeling strong and all those things, she had run the idea by me a couple times of like, maybe I could come in and talk to the team um, or whatever. And then about a month or two ago, she must have spoken with the coach and apparently they have had seven injuries mm. Um I think eight injuries, seven that were ACL in the last year and a nice. half on a high school oh. team. And yeah, so that's kind of like epidemic type level to, to, you know, at the risk of maybe sounding a little bit dramatic, but um, that's the kind of stuff that when I hear just makes my skin crawl because there are things we can do. You know, you I, I hate the word prevention, like you can't. You can't guarantee somebody that you're going to prevent injury, but I wholeheartedly believe that there are things that we can be doing as long as we're a little bit diligent and put in a little bit of the time up front and kind of gain the um, consistency and participation from a group of kids um, that there absolutely are things that we can do to, to at least reduce risk. Um, so anyway... Long story short, I guess she had spoken to her coach, and her coach is, um, uh, I haven't met this motivated of a high school, female soccer team, high school level, you know, public school coach. Um, you know, in my experience in the past, most female high school sports get mm. zero consideration, um, let alone a coach that wants to implement a program to reduce risk. So I was super pumped um, that he was super pumped to talk to me and myself and my boss talked to him uh, probably a month ago. Um, and after we talked, everybody was just like super hype about doing something, not even 100% <laughs> sure how it was going to go. But what we decided to do was myself, our, our strength intern, um, and now employee because we love him, uh, Nick Calandra, Strength coach student, you guys, oh, yeah. if you don't follow him, go for it. Um, he's 
he's been super helpful. And so literally that, that following weekend after we talked, we decided that myself, Zach and Nick amongst the three of us, there would always be two of us there. And we were just going to take over the captain's practices Mm -hmm. for the summer. Um, because there was definitely some things expressed to us that maybe those practices weren't taken the most seriously. Um, and since they're already doing summer league and getting some, you know, sports specific work on their own. And some of them also train at Mike Boyles. Um, I saw that as a really good opportunity for us to kind of come in and organize a little bit, nothing crazy, um, but really just work on more of the plyo agility, speed, and really the biggest thing, especially from what I've been reading as of late, is uh, landing control, like load acceptance and those kinds of things. So long story short, sorry, not really short story. Um, Nick and I sat down the, the following weekend and put together a two-day-a-week um, program that we sort of took the, for anybody who knows or has experience, we took the uh, FIFA 11 warm-up and kind of modified it a little bit to a little bit shorter, but just to start every practice with that because it incorporates very well backed by research um, and incorporates some single-leg stuff, things like that. We took that and just three blocks, like basically three circuits of um, one is plyo, uh, one is speed and agility, and one is kind of um, more with the ball, gain speed, uh, unpredictable, like reactive stuff. Um, And really just three chunks, like that simple, um, that we can do in an hour with them, two days a week. And so far, we've had three practices. We did some baseline testing and it's been awesome. Um, feedback has, has been great. We've had at least 12 to 15 girls every time on a, on a awesome. 20 girl varsity team. Um, yeah. And it, we're opening it up to, I think JV and freshmen, um, as of this week, but yeah, that's kind of my, other than level up, um, that's kind of where I've been pouring a lot of my energy into and, and absolutely, loving it. I think that if we can get more people doing even just that, because this isn't a huge time mm-hmm. commitment. This is two hours of my week and we spent maybe two or three hours tops putting together the program. Obviously that's going to evolve. And I've reached out to some of my sort of informal mentors in the field, uh, Jared Boyd, Chris Butler, uh, Ryan Bogus, Tony Camilla, all to just kind of like run this by them and get feedback. And I know it's going to evolve, but if we can team up and have all of us doing even just this small scale stuff at our, you know, at the community level, but each of us, I think that, I don't know, I have a really good feeling that maybe that could catch on and actually be a thing. Cause I know at the high school, middle school level, it's hard mm-hmm. to make things mandatory. Um, <laughs> but if it just is, for lack of better words, made to be cool. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Just be like a thing that, you know, kids that are fairly serious about athletics just do. Um, That would kind of be my utopia. So Steph, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, and that's the idea that there is no, you can't prevent injuries, but there's stuff that we can, we can do. Yeah. Um, And obviously, you know, doing, Mm -hmm. creating some sort of, program to work on things that may not be a focus in like a high school training environment, you know, like proper plyo techniques, landing mechanisms, all that stuff. Um, 
for those of us, for those of the people that are like listening out there, are there any things that we can do like clinically if we're working with like a youth athlete or like, you know, is there something that athletic trainers out there can maybe talk to coaches about? Um, what do you got for us? Yeah, I, because I know it's totally different in a, when you're working with a team versus like one-on-one in the clinic. And that's definitely something that I'm working on fine tuning and probably always will be. That's fine. Um, I think that if you are, I think what PTs are running into a lot, um, both in my experience and what I'm hearing is that you were getting kids or adults three, four, five months out that maybe sort of the general outpatient PT gets you to a certain point. But if you want to take that next step as far as going back to sports safely without that increased risk of either injuring the other side or the same side, um, that definitely to me in my experience so far is is almost a little bit of a of a niche of treatment. Like you kind of have to have a little bit of experience and knowledge and sort of <laughs> um, plan <laughs> to to take that person that last those last couple phases, if you will. Um, so in the clinic, what I've been trying to do is at that point, that three, four, five months, they're probably doing some straight line dragging. Okay, not not at three months, but that that four plus months, they're probably doing some straight line jogging that you can work on. You know, a lot of times we'll do a a run walk progression. You know, start one minute on, one minute off, not more than 15 minutes. We kind of have a general plan that actually um, Danielle, run fit doc, um, has been hugely instrumental in implementing with us. And we still have a whole folder of her stuff that we use with patients very successfully. Um, Her and Chris Johnson probably... (laughs) save my soul in, in that realm. But, uh, anyway, we, you know, they're the biggest thing, especially in outpatient and insurance-based models, you probably have tops 40 to 60 minutes with that Mm. athlete at that time, maybe twice a week. So let's say you have two hours with this, with this patient athlete, whatever. Um, I've really been trying to focus on, okay, what can I do in that one hour, those two hours a week that are actually going to be extremely influential or beneficial for this person. So what I took a step back from was doing some of just general strengthening in or run intervals, give them that for home or gym. And when they're in with me, really, really focus a lot on like basically what I just explained that we're doing with the soccer girls, like three, three things that I want to touch on. So and it's all, it's all kind of that neuromuscular training. That's a little bit of a buzzword, but it's all focused around that. And the biggest thing in the beginning is really load acceptance, like landing and controlling landing on one leg, being able to tolerate um, weight bearing on a bent knee, which a lot of people, you'd be surprised they go to try it three or four <laughs> months out and then their body's just like, no. Um, and the... You know, we do we do still work on single leg strength, but the next step after that, really load acceptance, plyos, controlling stuff on one leg, mm. is um, the power production, especially single leg. Trying to push off of that one leg is really hard for a lot of people. I still struggle with it, and I had I had mediocre rehab, so that's one of the things that I kind of have a chip on my shoulder about, and I want to make sure that other people aren't still struggling almost ten years out of surgery with trying to generate power on that leg. Um, or 
be able to decelerate and change direction on that leg. Um, so I know that was somewhat disorganized. Let me recap. Basically, in in that hour, I would I've been dividing it up into sort of three blocks. Like in the beginning, um, some plyos, load acceptance, um, some single leg strength, maybe one of those days, and then power production. So after load acceptance or or force acceptance, then force generation, um, and then finish up with a little bit more of high speed, like acceleration, deceleration drills, cutting um, stuff with the ball, if it's soccer or, you know, as close as you can get to a sport specific situation, because you're never actually going to be able to recreate what happens on the field or the court or the track or turf, whatever it is. Um, so I know it sounds like a lot, but really if you just pick one or two drills in each of those things and kind of have them do rounds <laughs> of it, um, one, they're sweating. <laughs> and, and two, I've gotten some good feedback because I make sure that I ask um, that they really feel they got a lot out of it. And if you can do that consistently twice a week, what I'm reading right now too is um, I put it up on my story yesterday because I was like, <laughs> super nerding out about it, but they were talking about advocating for it even, even in season. Um, so even if it's once or twice a week in season, doing some of this, this jump land agility stuff, um, you know, for something like soccer, especially you don't have to heavy strength train nor I'm sure that that it could be another debate too, but cause you definitely want to strengthen through season. But I also understand the school of thought that maybe not doing heavy, more than maybe once a week during the season. Um, but yeah, I think I, that's what I try to structure each session like because I know they're doing those other things or should be doing those other things on their own. And I want them to get the most out of the time that they have with me um, consistently. So not just like hoping <laughs> that they're doing some <laughs> cutting drills on their own. Most most kids I know are probably not going to set up some cones and go do some cutting drills. Like mm -hmm. if I know they're doing it twice a week in the clinic with me, then that makes I think all you know all around everybody happier. <laughs> that makes sense. I don't know if that answers. And they're question. probably more likely to do you know like walk jog intervals or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, question yeah. for you on on like those specific type of drills. Can you hear us, Steph? Steph? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, can you hear us? Mike? Mike, Hello? can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear Steph. Can okay. Steph, can you hear us? question that I was going to ask you was um, when you're programming that stuff or, or doing that in the clinic, 
how mm-hmm. much volume are you looking at? Because I know with like plyometrics, sometimes they talk about a certain yeah. number of touches per week or per yeah. session. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like? And then how many, you know, like what's your volume like for those cutting drills? Like if you're going to do like a 5, 10, 5 or, yeah. you know, something like that, yeah. what, what does that look like? Absolutely. And I, um, <laughs> I think I actually texted Taylor when I first started um, structuring stuff this way and uh, full disclosure, I really started making this and sort of beta testing this change, like probably three or four months ago. Um, mm-hmm. It's evolved a little bit, but it's, it has been very helpful. Um, and I've gotten good feedback. So I, for a little while, I'm going to stick with it. Um, but I texted Taylor to make sure, because I know that um, she has a training background too, and I wanted to make sure that I could either find the right resources for like number of touches per session that I think the NSCA talks about. Um, And I believe it was between, they always give ranges, but I believe it was between 40 and 60 or 40 and 80. So the way I kind of, I sort of used that as my, um, in the back of my head when I was um, programming things. And then what I do is we have the that big whiteboard and it changes. It's not like everything that I put up there is set for each patient because we, we do it for not just post-op um, or just ACL patients only, but um, we kind of have a framework for the day that we want to work on for most patients. But, you know, somebody might come in and just be like, Dude, I feel like crap today. And I'd be like, okay, so we're going to change some things. Um, but for the most part, at least for the couple of ACL athletes I have, I will have pretty much a plan for the day, knowing either I will ask them very early on, you know, what is what does your week look like? Do you run on your own? Are you training, you know, for these females that I'm working with, a lot of them, like I said, they lift at boil. So I'll say, what days do you go to boil? What day are you running on your own? What day are summer league games, those kinds of things, because the other thing that I'm really trying to work on and learn more about is acute chronic workload ratio. So Mm. being able to get almost like their arbitrary number and make sure they're not going um, super over that. Um, And we can talk about that later. I can give you guys, because Tim Gabbett is is the guy that you want to read about with acute to chronic workload. Um, But I will use that number of touches, yes. And so... um, to simplify, really, I will take, you know, the plyo section in the beginning, I'll have two to three actual exercises, like usually a satchel plane double leg, like maybe a, a, bo- a regular box jump. Um, and I want to do something not in satchel plane. Maybe we'll do like skater hops or like lateral hurdles. Um, and then something that's either a little bit that's a little bit more single leg. Um, so pretty simple, like a, a sagittal plane double, um, frontal plane double or single, and then um, a single leg, maybe box jump or something like that. Um, and I will have them do three to four rounds of only like three to four touches each. Does that make sense? So that kind of first block as far as touches go, um, and especially since they're more double leg, it's more, let's see, let's do a little math, maybe 16 touches. 
give or take. Um, per exercise? Um, yes. Okay. But like I said, I try to do a little bit more double leg. Um, and then the other stuff that's not like that third block of stuff won't necessarily be plyo. So I don't really count those as touches. But again, I will, it's stuff that's speed work. I'll, ha- I'll only have them do two or three rounds. Um, the speed and power stuff is like, like let's say that I'll have them do like a triple extension throw with the med ball. Like that, if it's paired with something in a circuit, like they will only do one of those, like one just explosive power thing. So as far as a touch or as far as a force generation, the reps are lower. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, you know what I mean? Like I might get, I might get an athlete in and they'll say, you know, this kind of feels easier or whatever. So we, we might be able to push it a little bit, but for the most part, the way it's structured and that, and then we'll do maybe some aerobic, like an aerobic finisher, especially with my soccer females that I've been getting in because they're, they're ramping up for the season soon. So um, kind of getting back that aerobic base and, you know, in the new clinic, we've got sleds, we've got the bike, we got ropes, we got med balls. So it, it's fun to do for the fun for them to do a finisher at the end, but it's also helpful as far as, you know, if we're doing intervals of for them, maybe 30 or 40 seconds on and only like 20 seconds off, but not necessarily gassing themselves, that kind of thing, like touching, touching on more of a, a soccer specific, um, cardiac output type thing. But yes, I do take into consideration touches and I will sometimes have, I get excited and I'll write it out and I'll be like, Whoa, that's a lot of touches. And I will like erase stuff for sure. Um, I, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> is, yeah, is, yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead, Mike. No, no, no. Keep going. I was going to say, is there a difference between, um, like touch volume with like a, a double leg sagittal versus like a frontal stuff? Cause I know, I know you're looking at overall volume, but I know you said you tend to have more with like a frontal plane or sorry, a sagittal plane, double leg. Um, is that just like personal preference? Is there any like research that shows like, hey, this is something that we need to work on more? To be honest, um, I don't. I'm not drawing off of research in that okay. sense. I'm kind of using my knowing that it's probably you know equal. If they're doing equal weight distribution, then it's a nice way to ease into plyos. Um, but also, I kind of use double leg as an assessment. Um, I know that sounds a little bit weird maybe, but especially in the beginning, and I don't really tell them that I'm looking at it, but especially post-op ACL when they are landing, sometimes I'll use like slow-mo on my phone and like, they might just think I'm putting it on Instagram or something like that. But slow-mo on my phone has been like a lifesaver, both with running clients (laughs) and with this, just when we start to introduce jump and land, because I'm not super skilled at looking at stuff in real time. I know some people, you know, especially the guys at iFast who were like, they'll be able to look at somebody cut in real time and be like, yo, he's not getting, he's not getting into his hip enough. And I'm like, I don't know what I just saw. So I, I've used that a lot and you can tell that people do see it. If you do like a squat or, or a chop bar deadlift, you'll kind of see the body either go away, like deviate away from that side or, that person won't necessarily sit into that hip a lot. And part of it, I believe, is because 
bearing weight on a bent knee is a tough thing to do even sans injury. You know what I mean? So to do that after injury and have your nervous system and brain feel comfortable with that is tough. And you might feel fine, but your body is going to take path of least resistance and you're going to do something a little wonky. So as far as like a, a double leg box jump, sometimes on their landing, you know, I'll cue, sit into that landing for a couple seconds, like hold the landing. And then when I film it and we look at it slow-mo, you'll see the same sort of thing you see with the double leg squat. Like they'll kind of, to, to describe it a little bit without showing is kind of like if somebody goes into a squat and let's say the injury side is right side, that right hip will stay higher. Like the left, the left hip and butt per se will kind of go lower. They don't want to sit in that. They don't want to bear weight on the bed. Knee. They don't want to load that side and mm-hmm. they might not even know they're doing it because it doesn't hurt. Um, but that double leg plyo in the beginning, kind of in the beginning of the session um, that's more of what I've been using it for. I don't, I, and that's kind of totally experience-based, um, <laughs> not an evidence-based <laughs> practice tool, <laughs> but, um, but I do, I have found value in that. And I think that in general, what I have found from research is that getting out of one plane, regardless of what sport you are, um, is beneficial because they're going to not only, you know, Humans move in in combinations of planes anyway. We know that, but um, Jake doesn't. Jake moves only on <laughs> <in> the sagittal plane. <laughs> Although overhead yeah, press is a frontal plane motion, so transverse plane is untapped. For for Jake, maybe that's adaptive because you know strongman stuff or whatever. He needs to just be strong AF in sagittal plane. So um, I'm just trying to help you out there, Jake. I appreciate it. Um, but oh shoot Um, humans move in three plays of motion yes so the other thing that I've actually been talking to a couple of my athletes about um, and that I kind of want you know other PTs or professionals to to weigh in in on because I'm open to it is I've also been yes I advocate for having parts of my session be you know, trying to avoid valgus when possible, especially with landing and weight acceptance, those types of things. Um, and, you know, a good base of support and really controlled, nice looking landings. Like that's definitely important for the athlete or the patient to be able to demonstrate. But when you think about it, they also need to be able to tolerate and control the limb in maybe some of those suboptimal positions because they're not going to be able to think, oh, let me land soft on this one leg and sit into my hip when they're going up for a header and they didn't hit mm-hmm. in the air. You know what I mean? So like I want to try and do the best I can to introduce them and maybe not necessarily stress so much during certain parts of the session. You know, they're, they're definitely in the beginning and middle where – I'm like, yeah, I really want you to focus on landing this way, land soft, like deliberate, predictable, those kinds of things. But I had a couple of patients say, oh, my knee came in on that one or whatever. And at the end of the session, when we're doing some of the higher speed stuff or whatever, or you're, or with the girls in a group, I tell them I don't necessarily, I'm not going to harp on that. 
what I do want to harp on is you still, even if it's not a great position, that you still stick the landing, that you still like, you know, control your shit for lack of better words, even, <laughs> even in not great positions, because if you're talking about ACL, the graft itself is going to have to withstand load in suboptimal positions. So if you don't expose it to those, that's one of the areas where I feel like maybe that has something to do with the high rates of re-injury. Like maybe it's just like they can be really, really strong in good positions, but on the field, there's a lot of times where you're not in good positions, but you still need to be able to control that or at least tolerate it, if that makes any sense. So do you feel like that it's more of a, is that more of like a, uh, like a confidence thing? And like getting them oh, to feel yeah. more comfortable in those positions again because i know in the limited experience that i've had a lot of times people coming back from acls or, or any injury or surgery in general you kind of start to get them back to where they want to be and they're just like this doesn't feel right right and, and you gotta kind of like slowly goad them into just becoming more and more comfortable yeah hell yeah that's confidence is huge um and especially for females i'll be honest like this Talk about grinds my gears. So <laughs> attitude as of now, the kind of overarching theme, I feel like, or expectations of people, especially females, is almost that they, they almost expect to tear. And mm-hmm. I hate that. And I, mm-hmm. I think that once they injure it, that going back it's like they're they they don't they don't go back to their same level of intensity or level of play i think more so because of the psychological impact than they are for physical preparedness to be entirely honest um in my experience working with athletes especially females trying to take that like last you know, just from what they say to me, it's like, well, I know it's not actually ever going to be the same. And I'm like, it might not, but that doesn't mean that you can't <laughs> use it the same way as the other side or use it the same way that, that you did before. So I think that other than general getting to kids early, reducing risk, that that other piece, that confidence piece is really what drives me as far as trying to educate on this and kind of what makes this whole thing my pipe dream is because I really think that if we can address that confidence piece, um, that how people are playing, you know, I think them ending up playing more timid and maybe altering how they would move normally because they're less confident could even be contributing to the re-injury rate itself also. Um, and that is, yeah, there is a little bit of research on the psychological impact of how people move but i think that's also just very anecdotally true for people it's like they just don't feel like they're exerting the same i don't know hustle or force or they're just not at that that level of play and i definitely think that reaching that same level of pre-injury play um not necessarily returning to sport but but taking it that further step and playing at that higher level is a hundred percent affected by the psychological part. So that's one of my 
other goals. I, I told the girls first time I met them that I only have six to eight weeks basically with you before the season starts. And I was like, if you get nothing else out of this, I want you to just go into the season feeling more confident and stronger. And, um, I hope that we do that. <laughs> and so, you kind of no, no, Mike, it's your turn. I'll I'll fill in after you. <laughs> no, I was just saying you kind of like uh, you kind of like setting the stage there, um, kind of curbing and managing those expectations a little bit. Um, I want to get into a little bit in um, terms of like initial evaluation stuff, but I want to hear what Jake has to say first before we move that direction. Oh, Mike, I was going to say this is this kind of reminds me of the convo we had last night when we were just like making uh, beer milk. And uh, <laughs> there's a story behind that, but for lack of time, we'll we'll do that later. Um, but just just the fact that like we had this conversation about how like you know if you only come into the clinic like one or two hours a week, wh what is what does that do? Like, are we? I feel like at least in my brief foray into PT, it's almost like that session is more of purely trying to address things that maybe a patient or, or clients like feels uncomfortable with trying to give them mm -hmm. confidence to be able to do the things that they need in real life and maybe give them advice or show them, Hey, here's some more exercises. Like let's progress this, um, yeah. more so than anything else. Cause if I just like push on your knee for 30 minutes and then we <laughs> only have 15 minutes left, like what have we accomplished? Um, yeah. An insurance based model, like we, I might be biased, but at Boston PT and Wellness, we do a pretty good job of optimizing that insurance structure to where, like, we have 30 minutes one-on-one -on -one with people, and, you know, we are very lucky to have kick-ass aides that really have exercise background, and our clinics are open so we can kind of keep an eye on things, but that's just it. Technically, if everybody comes on time and it's follow-ups, I have 30 minutes one-on-one -on -one with you. I will be with you with another person there after that, but in those 30 minutes, I'm not going to spend 15 of them doing manual therapy. I, I use tape sometimes. I will use a little grass in or something if I feel like that can help desensitize. Like I, do, I am not 100% against it, but I might spend five minutes if, if that's part of what we do. Um, so yes, I agree, hundred percent. Trying to utilize the the hour or two hours a whole week that you have with them that's huge, and, and people appreciate that. Uh, I'll be upfront with them and just be like, "Listen, you're you're with me two days a week. I'm probably going to give you a bunch of activity modifications if something is painful or whatever, but I'm not going to sit down here and give you twelve exercises to do, you know, at home every day that you're going to have to set aside a half hour for, like." If you're going to the gym, we'll come up with a gym structure. When you're here, this is what we're going to work on. Um, and and the other thing that I think that is super helpful is kind of almost doing, a, even if it's just via subjective, doing a little bit of a reassessment each time somebody comes in. Um, because then, you know, you might come up with a really kick-ass plan. But for whatever reason, you know, maybe you guys were wrong. And it's not necessarily meniscus. It's something else that might be irritating or contributing to the pain state that they're in. Um, and so the game plan you came up with is maybe not a hundred percent fit for that individual. So if you're not asking every time they come in, how they're responding to things, then you 
might go a little too long doing one way of things that isn't super ideal for that person. Um, so I put a lot of value in that too, as far as, cause that takes what, three minutes of your time to say, mm-hmm. Hey, how did you respond to this? You know, how was your weekend? <laughs> how was your hike? <laughs> Whatever. Um, and I, I diverged, I'm sorry, but yes, I agree with you being focused on just having those two sessions or two hours a week being really, really, um, yeah, focused. I mean, like targeted. Yeah, because that's that's mm-hmm. one thing that I, I stole from uh, Zach was the whole like one percent of your week, and that you know the emphasis mm-hmm. should be on the activity modifications or the things that you're doing outside of the clinic to get you back to where you want to be. But that when we have time yeah. together inside the clinic, we can do stuff to um, you know work on some of those modifications talk about different strategies to do something. Maybe if you're at a point where, you know, for knee recovery, you haven't, you haven't kneeled yet. Maybe, Hey, let, maybe let's look at kneeling and see what that right. feels like. So you can get back to gardening, you know, and maybe that little milestone yeah. in that rehab process, like gives that person so much more confidence because they can do stuff now. And because they're doing more things, mm-hmm. they're like working on being more and more active. And then they're just taking back that range of motion, whether it's flexion or extension or, you know, working on getting transfers from the ground to standing. Um, yep. And so like, that's, I guess that's one thing that's really been eye opening for me has been just like trying to think about those sessions differently and like, what, what can I do to empower my patient or how can we work as a team to overcome some sort of obstacle versus just like, all right, you did three yeah. by 10 last week. All right, you're going to do three by 12 this week, or let's go up to a black therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> That's great. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, kind of like the early stages of rehab too. Um, and, I, and I was just kind of curious and what your thoughts were. So you have somebody that has just gone through an ACL reconstruction. They're coming in, you know, for their first visit and all that kind of stuff. Um, what kind of conversations are you having to, to kind of manage those expectations um, and, and how do you help maintain motivation for the athlete that's going to be, you know, come to your clinic for X amount of time, you know, for at least the next four months or something like that? Like, yeah. What kind of, yeah. What kind of conversations are you having? Well, hopefully um, we have touched base with them prior to surgery, but we don't always have that luxury um, because I think prior to surgery or, or as close to right after injury that we can speak with them versus a surgeon. <laughs> Um, it's awesome. And that's nothing, nothing against surgeons because ACL surgery has come a really, really long way and, um, they're doing awesome things. Um, but they are very straightforward. Like this is what we're going to do. You need to be in the break. Like they're doing their job. You have to either, some still use the CPM machine. Some say you have to be locked in the brace for all this. So it's all of the logistics stuff. But when you're talking about a young athlete, especially, that shit just gets scary. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I'm not allowed to do this. It's a, it's a lot of you're not allowed. Um, and so essentially when they first come in post-op, first of all, we try and say a lot of times that if it's the parents that are making the, um, the appointments, they're like, well, okay. The doctor said like, wait two weeks. And we're like, no, as soon as you feel okay to be upright after anesthesia with, with pain meds and you don't feel woozy or whatever, get in here because there is, I think there's probably two or three big things that I, that I would tell an athlete in being like training the other side, training mm-hmm. the other leg, you get carryover. 
So we're going to do a ton of crap on the other side. We're going to work on keeping your aerobic base. Um, we're going to work on that quad contraction, obviously. You know, we, we're not anti, that's one of the, the, the avenues that I love using STEM for. And we use STEM in a mirror box for quad retraining. And again, it's confidence, confidence, confidence. And when they first come in post-op, I, you know, I could never, if I tried, probably be the same energy level as Zach in some, <laughs> in some capacities and, and, and people, people like that. Um, that's not my strength, but I try to be, exude as much excitement that they're there as I can because mm-hmm. This person just embarked on a six-month minimum um, recovery process. And if this is somebody who's an avid soccer, basketball, volleyball, hockey, whatever it is, whatever age, doesn't have to be young, um, that's, that's daunting. So I try and be – I tell them that they're pumped, that I'm pumped that they're there, and this is what you can expect the first – you know, if it's strict ACL, no meniscus or anything like that, I'll say, really, you know, we're weight-bearing is tolerated. I want you, the biggest things in the beginning are the quad contraction back, making sure that we work on that extension and normal walking pattern. I tell them first week or two, that's it. Like we're going to lose some other stuff in the clinic as far as the other leg and, and strengthening things like that. But those, those three things, get back that quad contraction, make sure our range is, is on point and walk normally as soon as possible because that's actually one thing that I think in the past I wasn't as great at. But if you have an altered gait pattern for a while, it almost becomes learned. And then you you automatically you're feeding into that that other side just moving differently. And then when you get into things, some higher level things, if you're carrying that with you still, it's just a detriment. So I lay those things out and I make it really simple simple, simple goals in the beginning. And then once they crush those, because they're going to, (laughs) um, then they're like, all right, you know, what's next type thing. So as far as like week one or week two, um, that's really all I'll tell them. I have uh, other things going on in my mind as far as plans, obviously, but, um, I'm, I lay those out because one, they're easy Two, they're, they almost laugh at at us a little bit or laugh at me for being super enthusiastic about just walking normally. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's probably the the first few sessions um, after like post-op. Okay. So you you kind of, um, you keep the goals relatively simple to start. Uh, It's kind of like a motivational piece because they're going to be able to achieve them, challenge them for sure, obviously, um, but they'll be able to achieve them. And that helps to kind of build that confidence that we've been talking about. Is that right? Absolutely. How long are you, is that normal gait pattern like a window for you? Because I feel like with, even a lot of ACL patients that are two, three months out, that gait pattern may not be mm-hmm. perfect. They still have that like kind of classic, yeah. like a little bit more stiff on that affected side because their knee's still a little bit swollen. Um, mm-hmm. Like how 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 long does it take on average, and I guess in your opinion, to get that to be back to normal normal? Yeah, I um my loose goal is that first month um, because some people swell more than others. And sometimes the swelling is not where you can see it. It's still intraarticular inside the joint. So that gives that for people who have had knee surgery, like 
I can empathize with people in, in having that sort of full feeling on the inside of the knee. So when you get towards end ranges of flexion and extension, it just doesn't feel good. Um, and as we know, pain and soreness and whatever it is, the feelings of pain, soreness, and tightness, they alter how you move. So I am very respectful of that in the sense that, you know, we'll talk about that too. You know, does it feel kind of full? And then people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so if that's something that they're struggling with for the first three or four weeks, I'm not going to say like, you really need to walk normally. Like I know because I've been there, I know that, that what that feeling is and that if you don't, when you get to that terminal knee extension and walking, like it's just uncomfortable. Um, so your body's going to keep it slightly bent. Uh, and you might have to use something like a little bit of a hip hike to clear the toe type thing. I'm not crazy if that's something that's lingering for them, but on the other hand, if, if I'm doing my job too, working on controlling swelling a little bit and really getting them comfortable with terminal knee extension, both weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing, like that's the other thing, like I, like I said before, there's some things going on in my head that I don't tell them. One of those things is really, really hammering away at working on bearing weight on a bent knee, and that's something I give credit to uh, Chris Butler for re- you know, sort of reestablishing that in my early plan of plan of care, but also all forms of TKE or terminal knee extension on your belly with your feet on the roller, standing with a band, just make the body comfortable, like hammer away at terminal knee extension because in friendly positions, obviously, because that's going to carry over to walking, um, and sometimes if it's just that little bit that they're struggling with, I'll say, yo, you know what we just did with the band? Or you know what you just did on your belly with the weight or with the BFR or whatever it is? Like that is the same exact thing as that last little bit of your walking cycle. So if you can handle bearing weight and squeezing the band back, like use that terminal knee extension exercise, technically that's a snapshot into that part of your walking cycle. So Physically, we know you can do it. It's putting together the pattern, and I'll tell them that, like that putting stuff, you might be able to do that snapshot, like the snapshot of terminal knee extension, but putting it into the pattern of walking is where you might have to work with your nervous system a little bit. And they usually seem to get that, um, but you're right. The people who who the swelling might linger a little bit or that they're a little bit more timid, like I'm not going to do a hard and fast by three or four weeks you have to walk normal. Like that's ideal. Um, but you can't necessarily, because we're working with humans, um, you can't necessarily put that cap on it. It's like when, when parents are like, oh, my kid is nine months old and they're not doing like this milestone or whatever you have to, it's a little bit of a gray area for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I have a couple of patients right now. One, one's post ACL and one is, uh, uh, post ORIF of tibia. He had a traumatic tib fib fracture in a baseball game. That's tough too, especially yeah. with weight bearing after those. Um, and like the guy that's post tip fib fracture, when I saw him, he first came to to us almost three or four weeks post op because he had home health. He couldn't even mm-hmm. do a straight leg raise. Yeah. At three or four weeks out. Yeah, it's so crazy. like kind of like behind the ball. I feel like we're behind the ball a little bit, but I think part of that is just yeah, like you're saying, like getting them getting him used to walking and like weight acceptance with that like end range extension 
Um, it's just like, there's just some situations yeah. where it just like makes you scratch your head. Cause it's like, why isn't this taking, you know what I mean? Like they can do every, every other yeah, checkbox no, is checked, but like for whatever reason, there's just this last little thing that won't, won't iron out. Yeah. And it's tough too, because in those situations you really have to, a lot of times in the back of their head, they, they know they're a little behind the ball, like you were talking about and, and that's stressing them out a little bit. So the hardest part too is being upfront and transparent with them. Like, yeah, we're, we're a little behind, but also not necessarily demonizing that or blaming a prior, um, physician or clinician or PT or whatever it is. And just be like, this is what it is. We know that the system is adaptable. It might take a little longer than we want, but we just need to start here and do this and kind of get after it. Because if, if you harp and that's just like a, a psychology thing, I think just a picking up on social cues. Like if you harp on the one thing that they know they have to work on already, it's like telling people, people who are overweight that they need to lose weight. Like they know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those things where I'll, we'll talk about it real quick and I'll tell them, what we're going to do about it, but I kind of just don't visit it too often because I know they're probably visiting it enough in their own head um, for the both of us. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like that. Random milestone question, since we're talking about normal gait. When yeah. is it most acceptable to start return to run? Because uh, I've seen different surgeons do different things. Um, and I feel like mm -hmm. what I've seen mostly is like between 10 and 14 weeks, depending on the surgeon. But what is there yeah. like, is there some research out there that says like, Hey, we should do this at this month. Is it more of just like, do you have the aforementioned criteria to be able to control yourself when you're running? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I still use that, that 10 to 14 weeks, as far as even just from a graft, uh, remodeling and healing standpoint. Um, cause you do have to respect that, um, hundred percent. But the thing where I think that I might sometimes do things in a slightly different order is I actually will not start the run walk progressions until my patient can demonstrate some low level plyo, um, competence. So, and don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not having them do like I was talking about before the those sessions of, you know, single leg, double leg box jumps, all those things I'm talking about as simple as like going from a tall stand to a squat, meaning like they kind of, their feet come off the floor for a second after tall stand and literally just the lowest level of accepting load. Um, double and single leg that way, being able to, to control that, we might do some box drops. So I would, to clarify a little bit more on the load acceptance side um, before progressing to the load or the force generation or power production stuff, because that's going to, to me, come after running. But on the spectrum, I want them to be able to control and do well with load acceptance, even on the low level before running because basically I think one of the things that a lot of people and even clinicians forget is that running is a skill. Hmm. Um, again, shout out to run fit doc and, um, 
and Chris Johnson, but they are low-level repeated plyos. Um, so to me, having their influence, um, I kind of started doing that a little bit on my own. Um, most of the um, post-op protocols that are actually published right now, even some of the the ones that are 2015, 2016, and, and more recent than that, still are going to have straight line running before plyos. So I switched up a little bit um, in that sense, but I still use that kind of 10 to 14 week framework um, before actual running. I might try some of those low level plyos by like eight weeks, depending on how they're, they're progressing. Um, because I know that that's a safe way to load the graft in those controlled environments um, that they're going to be loaded either the same amount or more when you go to inline running. Um, does that make sense? So I'll, I'll try and implement a couple of, of those low level or kind of like running specific drills, load acceptance, double and single leg um, before initiating a run walk program. And that will still be at least the 10 weeks, probably nine, 10 weeks. Gotcha. Cool. What and are I'm your not thoughts? Claiming that, but I'm not claiming to be the only one that, that does that. I just, I know that I have felt more comfortable and the patients that I've worked with, have felt more comfortable with doing some of those little gentle plyos. I think that that helps almost as a confidence booster. If we're going with that theme too, now that I think about it out loud, it does kind of, you know, I will tell them why I'm having them do that before running. And then when they really own that, when they own like the double and single leg, just tall stand to squat. Um, then since they know where my train of thought is, they're like, okay, yeah, I'm ready to run. Let's do it. I feel um, like, I feel like that makes, that makes a lot of sense too. Cause, um, one of the, I've had a lot of discussions with some other clinicians that I work with back and forth about, you know, the order of stuff or like where does strength fit into ACL rehab? Where does, um, you know, when should running come? How do you approach that? Um, and it's interesting because with the guy that I'm working with right now, if we just have him like just try a little jog to see what it feels like, yeah. you know, the yep. first time he, he did that, it was like, oh man, it just, the impact feels weird. But then mm -hmm. circling back and doing some of those like light plyos that I totally stole, stole from your uh, Instagram feed <laughs> and Taylor's and Wesley's and uh, <laughs> strength coach therapy. Um, those have definitely been a big confidence booster for him because it's like, okay, this isn't that bad. And then, yeah. you know, we revisited just a, a kind of a light jog down the field like a week or two later. And it's like, oh, this feels better. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, I, I mean, that confidence thing that has been a theme for this whole episode is, is like hugely important for that whole rehab process. Yeah. No, I just, just having gone through some of these questions with you guys, I didn't realize it, but I think that underlying, I think how I function most with um, these particular patients is that whole the underlying theme is confidence. Um, so uh, I, Thank you for helping me realize that because <laughs> that will probably help in future conversations too. But yeah, I think that's sort of the common mm. thread. Um, Steph, I know, I know you're kind of on a time crunch today. So if you want, we can wrap up here pretty quickly. I did have one more question that was in my brain that I figured I'd throw out there. Um, and yeah, I got, I got time for one. I got to leave and we got to leave here and like, 
15 minutes to go see an apartment. So, um, okay. So real quick, one more question and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up. Um, so my, I guess kind of like thinking about, you know, like milestones and when we're looking at achieving like full extension, full flexion, Mm -hmm. um, how, and, and this is, I guess, just like, what are your thoughts on how important or how much emphasis should we place on like manual techniques? for regaining that versus, you know, do you think there should be more of an emphasis on exercise? That is definitely a little bit gray area too. I don't do a ton of manual with my patients unless it is where they are like really, really super stiff. But in my experience, when somebody else is cranking on the knee, that just kind of contributes to a reflexive tightening back up. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I have had a little bit more success with is we actually, we call them flexion and extension drills, but they're a little bit, um, FRC influenced. So like, for instance, the extension drill is, um, I'll have the athlete put their heel up on like maybe a couple foam pads or something. So that there's space between the floor and the back of the knee. And then we'll take the kettlebell maybe, 12-ish pounds, maybe like an an 8 or a 10 kg, um, and put it right above the knee, and then I'll have them sort of unlock or just go into slight flexion and then go back down to full extension and then with the weight on the knee, um, do a quad set and hold for a few seconds and then come back out of it and then do something similar with a strap um, prone, like heel towards your butt, push out into the strap almost like you're doing knee extension isometric, a couple of times and then try and pull actively heel towards your butt a couple of times, 10 second holds, and then a passive self stretch into heel towards butt. Um, I've had a lot better results with that. And sometimes we'll just have to spend more time on that with some people. But in my experience, I'm almost being a little bit detrimental to them by cranking on it because especially if it's somebody who's a little already, wary of those end range positions and they're one of those people who you can't get to Mm -hmm. quote unquote relax. Um, you, I end up feeling like I'm not doing them any favors, but when they are doing it to themselves, they, I don't know the psychology behind it, but I think that they can relax into those positions a little bit better because there isn't an external force Mm -hmm. just cranking on their knee. Um, and they are, it's self-limiting in a sense, like they are doing it to themselves. So if they get to a part that's maybe a little bit uncomfortable, they stop just short of that, but ease into it a little bit. And then maybe next rep, they can do a little bit more. Um, so that's where I've spent more of the quote unquote manual time full stop as far as regaining flexion and extension. Um, and so far I've had some better results than, than my own hands. So, um, not only does it make my job easier, but again, I think it goes, I think it goes into um, instilling confidence in them too. Yeah, I mean, it's given them a, a tool and a sense of autonomy that they can use to to kind of take control of their rehab process. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, because again, those themes of confidence, and also you're only here for like two hours a week, so you you know you right. gotta be able to take that rehab process into your own. Um, hands. So, yeah, and if it's somebody really struggling with the range, I'll say, listen, you know, you always say this, this feels better after you do it and after we move, 
these flexion extension drills for someone like you, I will say do those twice a day, like when you're not in here. Um, otherwise I'm not really one that's going to try and implement a quote unquote stretching routine daily for people. Um, but that's, that's probably a time where I'll say, listen, as far as your HEP, like, <laughs> you know, hammer at these a couple times a day, do it while you're watching TV or whatever. It's going to, you're consistent with it. You're going to, you're going to see a difference. Um, and when you can confidently say that to someone, I think that, um, that that goes a long way for them too. <laughs> Your confidence instills their confidence. <laughs> Trying. <laughs> confidence is contagious. It's like a smile. I do. Or, um, you know, incredibly deadly disease like the black plague. <laughs> <laughs> Tomato, potato, as I always say. Oh, man. Oh, good lord. <laughs> oh, Mike, I think we need... It's time for some beer milk, man. Oh, dude. <laughs> uh. Well, thank you, though, guys. I, I, there's a couple things that I read over the last couple weeks that I kind of have been excited to speak about, and some of the stuff that you guys asked me um, allowed me to do that. Um, one of them was that, that study that I posted yesterday. I finally finished it, and it's like... It's one of those, like... Damn, that study was awesome. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share that. I'm gonna use that. There, I, I feel like you don't come across too many, especially in the ACL world right now, because they seem to be pretty, pretty similar. But this one was very, very useful. So I can also um, give you guys those for show notes too, because I think everybody should read it. Yes, that would be, awesome. yeah, that would be great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I appreciate that. All right. Well, so I'm gonna... I, Mike, I guess it's that time of the show. It is. Yeah. And so, Steph, uh, we always ask this question at the end of our uh, episodes. And so uh, we're lucky enough to, to ask this one for, to you for a second time here. So uh, we here at the Movement Docs believe in always moving forward in all that you do. Based on all of your previous experience and knowledge in life and the pursuit of happiness, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to anyone listening to this show to help them be the best versions of themselves? Yes. So I think that I honestly can't remember what I said last time, but definitely something that I have been working on lately and comes up a lot. Um, I'm pretty sure that I, I talked about mentoring last time. So that's, that's huge. Just kind of formally or informally find yourself a mentor, be open to any type of criticism um, because it's coming from a good place. And even though it might sting, you're going to be better for it. I think the other thing, Big, big thing as you go through clinical, academic, professional, personal life is don't compare yourself to other people. Mm. Um, just kind of go after your own goals. You are going to get there in a, at a different pace, a different path, and that's okay. You don't have to have, as uh, Danielle said, too, you don't have to have everything figured out the same age that maybe some of your friends or colleagues did. Um, and I think putting for going with that theme, just be confident in yourself and, and your own journey and, um, one thing at a time type thing. Just don't, don't compare to other people cause you will get there. <laughs> That's awesome advice. That was actually just the conversation that Jake and I were having yesterday Yep. <laughs> about that. So that's, that's awesome that you, um, that we're, we're talking about that now. Yeah, I'm terrible at it, so <laughs> I, I need to cast it on myself. So I figured maybe I 
maybe I'm not the only one. I should should tell some others like just you know sleep. Keep I, feel eyes like, on. I feel like we're all like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's probably not a, a novel idea at all, but just a good reminder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like I like that. Mel Mel posted something about that. I think last night too. Um, that same mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like just you're gonna do you. You can't you yeah, can't compare absolutely. yourself to other people, and you can't use other people to like set the standard of where you think you're supposed to be. You just have to do the best that you can and make sure that you give everything your all and live your life. Mm. Amen. Yeah. Although, Mike, I, you know, after that, that question there, I'm thinking maybe we should, in the, especially given the context of like ACL rehab, I'm wondering if we should change uh, always moving forward. Because how do you, what if you're doing a backpedaling drill? <laughs> I mean, in a metaphysical sense, yes, you're moving forward as far as rehab or like sports specific progression or yada, yada, yada. But Zach just walked in and you got him. He's laughing. Physically, you're moving backwards. So. <laughs> Um, I don't know. It's just, you know, one of those thoughts, thoughts in my head. Um, in the suggestion yeah, box. Yeah. Or laterally, lateral movement, right? Because, you know, from a forward backwards standpoint, you're really not changing position. Um, yeah, like net, net movement. It's not, yeah. not a lot, but skater hops are important, right? Progressing rehab, but we're we not move, physically moving forward, really just moving sideways. Unless we kind of get that like angled skater hop where you're like actually moving forward but also moving laterally. So, yeah, you do those. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Kit, I really look forward to, to like my next conversation with Zach. I feel like he's going to have a lot of little emojis at me. It's going to be great. <laughs> Well, Steph, we can't thank you for taking the time to be on our show today. If anyone listening to the show wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way that they can do that? Um, I'm, I'm mostly on, on Instagram, um, stephallen.dpt. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's probably your best shot. <laughs> to be honest, I, I'm terrible at Facebook. Um, I am on Facebook, but I, I need to, to work on that platform a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think I'm going to dive a little bit more into Instagram coming up here to more ACL stuff. So cool. Holler at me there. Sounds good. And we'll, uh, we'll put all the references and everything into the show notes for anybody that's interested in learning some more about some ACL things. Um, Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in this week where we spoke with Steph Allen. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or have a topic that you'd like us to discuss, shoot us an email at tmdmovementdocs at gmail.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. You guys rock. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Steph. Hey, Mike, do you have any more beer milk left?